Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. I didn't get that in the recording, but did you want to do it again? Boy, are you high tech. All right. So in Genesis 32 is where we're at tonight. Um, for context, we are, last time we left off, our character Jacob uh, was leaving Laban after 20 years. And he was, um, so Laban was upset with him because he kind of took off. So he had Laban chasing him with a small armed force. And in front of him, he knows he has Esau who could theoretically still want to kill him. So he's kind of between a rock and a hairy place. And I thought, uh, uh. Um, but this Genesis 31, 32, and 33 really is about this idea of what does a character like Jacob do? What does a person do when they're really just surrounded and they're in these tough situations? So with Laban, he faces him down and he kind of tells him off and then they part ways. Laban backs off and he kind of makes his case. Um, and in that case, of course, um, Jacob was kind of in the right, um, but God intervenes to soften Laban's heart through a dream. With Esau, he's going to take care of Esau very differently than he took care of Laban. But in this case, Jacob probably knows that he was in the wrong when he left Esau. He kind of, you know, took his blessing, and Esau didn't like that, and he wanted to kill him. And the reason I'm saying that now is because as we get into these chapters, Jacob kind of apologizes to Esau. And he leaves him with all his stuff. He doesn't ask for anything from Esau. And that's where we'll end tonight um, as we get through this kind of thing. So God blesses him. His holdings grew. He has 11 sons and one daughter. Um, and Jacob's done really, really well without any of Isaac's stuff. So, and, I, and, and we'll get into it a little bit, but I think that this is the tough situation. What do you do when you have somebody, a brother, who hates you? and wants to kill you in this case. We don't actually have as much of that in the United States, but we still do have people that really don't like us and they hate us. And you have those situations in life where someone hates you. Proverbs 18, 19 says, a brother offended is harder to be one than a strong city and their contentions are like the bars of a castle. Tonight we get to see how Jacob takes a strong city, how he takes someone who hates him and converts that person into peaceful or to find shalom with that person. Um, and we also get to see Israel get used for the first time. So there's a ton going on here. Let's start in verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. I'll say that again. Mahanaim. Maybe? I don't know. Um so the sentence before this, the end of 31, Laban goes his way, and then verse 1, so Jacob went his way. So the so is there because of that. Um, Jacob doesn't hang around. He doesn't. Once Laban takes off, he goes the opposite direction. He parts ways very deliberately with him. Uh, notice that, and we'll see this is typical, God assures Jacob 
after he takes his first steps. And we're going to see this over and over and over again in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomies. When believers act, God then assures them. But he actually expects believers to start moving before that tends to happen. So Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. They go together in that, and they're actually in one sentence. So Abraham is the father of faith. He's the original kind of top boss, family boss that we have. We have Isaac, the digger of wells. And by the way, I'm still blessed by that chapter on Isaac. I, it's, it seems to just be so applicable in the workplace. Like, what's the next well I want to dig? It's just worked its way into my, my vocabulary to the point where Heather Ross was looking at me like I was nuts because she was upset that someone had poo-pooed one of her ideas. And I said, it was a great idea. Don't get upset about it. Just dig your next well. And that's when she looked at me like, what are you talking about? So um, that's what Bible study does. It makes you talk weird to people. Um, and I said, oh, you got to, it's in Genesis 26. You should read that chapter, second half. Uh, Jacob needs then, Jacob has these two, his father and his grandfather are really there. Jacob needs God for decades. Notice a lot of time has passed in his life. He seems to be enduring, persevering. He thrives wherever he goes. He's clearly got talent because he was running things at Isaac's place. Then he's kind of takes over after a few years. He's running things at Laban's place. And now he's going off on his own to run things for himself. So it seems Jacob's extremely capable. So we have a character here who's actually really gifted, has a lot of skills, probably went to college, got a degree in sheep herding, and he's able to do those things and keep up. And he takes off and God's with him. And he saw them and he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. I'm going to stop trying to say that. Later, that city becomes a Levitical city. Each of the 12 tribes of Israel is going to have one city dedicated to the Levites, and that'll be the Levitical city. So this spot where he sees God's camp becomes a Levitical city later on. Um, he looks around. He sees he's not traveling alone. He gets to see angels. So we've seen angels a few times in Genesis. Um, if you have a whole camp of angels, that means you're in pretty good shape if it comes to a battle with Esau because he's probably thinking Esau's going to try to kill him. He's got all his people with him and whatnot. And this makes him really anxious in this chapter, so seeing angels makes him less anxious. To get a sense of the power of the angels, it took two angels to destroy Sodom and four other cities. When the Assyrians get wiped out in 2 Chronicles 32, only one angel wipes out hundreds of thousands of people. Um, there are multiple angels that minister to Jesus in Matthew 4.11, but here we see a camp of angels and I think that's what's needed to soften Esau's heart because a hard heart is even worse than just warriors and that sort of thing. Verse three, then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, which again means red. And he commanded them saying, "Thus speak thus to my Lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants, and I have sent them I have sent to tell my Lord that I might find favor in your sight. Um, when we see Edom and where that is archaeologically, we can see that from that sentence that Esau it was in the land of Seir, country of Edom, he's actually left the Holy Land. So it's east of Israel is where Edom is. Um, and that means that the Philistines and Isaac are still going back and forth over those wells. But somewhere in this storyline, Esau's taken his stuff and he's moved everything out of the Holy Land which is kind of interesting because that leaves it open for Jacob to come settle here. Um, Jacob defines himself as a servant and he calls him, he calls Esau my Lord. 
and asked for favor. So he's basically trying to tell his brother, I'm here to serve. You're, you're, you're the boss, you're the big brother, and I get that. And he's showing an extreme humility. And, and different commentators say this is, has different motivation for Jacob. I'm going to leave the motivation for now because the Bible doesn't say why he does this. Um, so I'm just going to take it at face value and we'll keep going through it. Verse 6. Then the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he also is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. So Jacob's now assuming that means Esau is still mad. He's going to attack. He's bringing 400 men. I think that's exactly what's going on here. You don't take 400 of your people off duty. Like imagine this at 3M. Let's take 400 people and say you don't have to work today. That doesn't happen unless you've got a significant mission you need to take care of. So Esau probably might even be thinking that Jacob's coming back to attack him. Uh, but he's bringing some men, to, so he means business. A lot like Laban brought a bunch of men with him. So uh, verse 7, so Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed because of that. And he divided the people that were with him in the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. I like how camels get their own category, but that's not really Bible study. It's just me thinking that's a quirky thing, and I think it's cute. And he said, if Esau comes to one company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. This is really kind of smart. Again, Jacob has talent. He's a clever guy, and he's a smart guy, and he knows what he's doing. With, La with Laban in Genesis 31, Jacob confronts Nate Laban, and he knew he was right. In this case, he kind of thinks Esau is going to attack, and he might even win because it could be just punishment. And Jacob's thinking he shouldn't have maybe listened to his mom back in the day. He should have just been nice to his brother. Maybe. I don't know. So he panics first, and then he starts to pray. In verse 9, he turns to the Lord, and he prays, which shows... Jacob is growing up a little bit, and he's matured, and he is, as a character and as a personality, he's doing things differently than we saw him do even a couple chapters ago. I think it's easy when you're a gifted human being to trust in yourself, and extremely hard to trust in God. Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to get through an eye of a needle um, than to enter the kingdom of heaven, and I think part of that is rich people feel competent, and they know what they're doing, and you never come to that place where you desperately need God because you're never broken. Um... Then Jacob said, in this case, though, however, Jacob, I think, has been broken. He had bad experiences with Laban. He had bad experiences with his brother. And at this point, he's really learned to turn to the Lord. So it's, again, when we see a prayer and that prayer gets answered, it's let's break down the prayer and look at it. In verse 9, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, so God of my father Abraham, Isaac, and me, return to your country and to your Lord, and I will deal well with you. I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you've shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I've become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me with the, and, and the mother with the children. For, for you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. So is Jacob praying with fear? Is he praying with desperation? I think he's praying with pr uh, in, in a prayer of insistence, or what I would call of the different kinds of prayers in the Bible. This is a prayer of promises. And look at how he breaks it down. There's four parts to his prayer. He shows, um, he acknowledges who God is at the beginning. He identifies God and points him out. 
Um, and he says, here's the promise you made to me. Return to your country and your family, and I will deal well with you. So he's heard from God before, and he's reminding God of, you said this. Then he acknowledges his status. And I think this is really cool in biblical prayer. The prayer almost always says, here's who I am, and here's who you are. This is the status we have, and it shows humility. I'm not worthy of the least of all mercies. And I think it's a really powerful thing when we pray to the Lord and we realize we're really not worth that much to God. God's amazing and huge and big, and we're one of, what, three trillion people on the planet or something crazy like that? What are we to God, yet that God still loves us, even though he doesn't have to? So he's not worthy of the least of all the mercies. In other words, Jacob is repentant, and he knows his place. Um, And of all the truth which you have shown your servant, he's grateful for what God has already shown him and what he's already experienced. Part three, the request, he makes his request and he has a confession with it. So he, he asks, save me from my brother. Um, and he confesses because I fear him. Um, when he says, I came here with my staff, he's basically saying, I started with nothing. And now look, I have two companies. I have total prosperity. And Jacob realizes I didn't get any of this without your blessing. Um, so he's saying, you can handle this, Lord. You've given me everything I have. You can protect those things. Um, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon talks about a rich person. The more stuff you get in life, the more you have to worry about protecting it. And it's kind of true. As you accumulate things and you add things, they suddenly become chores and they own you more than you own them. Ask anybody who has a boat, right? Um, and that's something with Jacob. He has all this stuff, but he still kind of acknowledges that God's in control. I liken this when he says, I fear Esau. Jacob's bringing real honesty to God, and I think we could do more of that in the church and just pray to God with truth and with honesty. Here's why I'm praying, Lord. It's because I'm scared to death of this guy. He's big, he knows how to hunt, and he's got 400 men with him. God's big enough for honest admissions. He's big enough even for us to argue with him. Um, And truth is a good starting point. I don't think, I, I saw a couple commentators where they try to think Jacob's trying to weasel God and I can't read this and see that. If you can, I think that might be a valid way to interpret this, that he's trying to kind of trick God to give him what he wants. And I think that comes with this narrative that Jacob's a trickster, which I haven't really run with that narrative. But when I read this prayer at point value, it sounds like a really honest guy saying, I'm scared to death. Lord, please help me. And I think that's super good. So he's being frank with God and honest with God. I don't think he's trying to fool God. Why would you try to fool God? It doesn't make sense. But there's still room to mature here because he's still scared, and he shouldn't be scared. If he believes in the promises of God, he shouldn't need to pray this prayer. But he does because he's human and he knows he needs to do it. Verse 13. So he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother. And we don't know why he started giving presents to Esau, but we do know he started doing this after he prayed. So it might be that God just kind of said, maybe you should start just giving things to Esau. So here's what he gave to Esau. If you could think of the best Christmas presents ever, here's the list. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 foals. That's the list. By anybody's standard, even today, that's a small fortune worth of livestock and animals. It's only a portion of what he has, though. Remember, he had over 500 livestock with him. Jacob was exceedingly, exceedingly, super exceedingly prosperous in the last chapter. Um, 
So why is he doing this? Why is he putting in this enormous effort to save himself um, when God's already revealed all these angels? So he doesn't have reason to think that the angels won't protect him because he's just we just got done reading that he saw the angels. So that led me to the question of, well, why is he doing this? And the logical answer is either God told him or inspired him to do this, um, or he feels like this is a good way to tell Esau, I don't need your stuff. I have plenty. Um, that said... He also has enough power with all his servants and all his people. He could probably make a good fight with Esau. He's probably strong enough to take him on and has enough people there. So, And he has a legal right to fight, all that sort of thing. And then we watched a movie this week because it came up on Netflix, God's Not Dead Part 3, The Light and the Darkness. Has anybody watched the God's Not Dead movies? Okay. They're a little hokey, but I appreciate that the Christian movie industry is trying. Right? So we kind of watch these, but this one just hit me and I'm reading through this and I'm like, so the whole plot line is this pastor's church gets burned down and then the college says, well, we're just going to move your church off the campus because we're not really a Christian campus anymore. And he's like, you can't just like eminent domain my property. So he gets into a big legal battle with the, the thing and the whole movie sets you up as a viewer to like side with this pastor in this fight that they're going to fight. And then the moment of change is in the movie is he realizes he's his own antagonist that as Christians, we don't have to fight. And he's kind of wrestling with that, and he talks to somebody in the movie, and he just says, I'm just so tired of losing all the time. I'm tired as a believer that we have to just turn our cheek and take it. But he kind of realizes maybe that's the right move. So he drops the court case, he drops the lawsuit, and then, of course, everybody lights candles, and everybody's happy and gets saved, and that's the end of the movie. Um, but it was such a great line. It's, I, or it was, I think it was, I'm paraphrasing. It was like, I'm tired of getting walked on. And as Christians, can't we fight back ever? Can't we ever kind of do that? Um, but he doesn't. And I think that's what's going on with Jacob. He's just not going to fight Esau. Why fight? What's, what, what, who wins in that? So in verse 16, then he delivered them to the hand of his servants, every drove by itself. So the ewes go, and then the rams go, and then the cows go. And he said to his servants, pass over before me, put some distance between us in successive drones. And he commanded the first one saying, when Esau, my brother, meets you, and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong, and where are you going? Whose are these in front of you? And then you shall say, They are your servant Jacob's. It's a present sent to my lord Esau, and behold, he is also behind us. And again, Esau is bringing an army. He's probably really mad. This is how you break down the stronghold of hate. You start with gifts. You start with prayer. Then you go to gifts, and you start using this language again and again. So he commanded the second and the third, and all who followed the drove, saying, in this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob is, behind, Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me, and afterwards I will see his face, and perhaps he will accept me. I'm going to do everything I can do to soften this guy up. So imagine that you're Esau, and you got your people together, and they're, Jacob's coming back. It's time to get him. Rounds up his posse, gets together. They all grab their little you know, Iron Age swords, and then they go running after, and, and then they come up, and there's a shepherd coming with a bunch of sheep. And they say, well, these are for you. They're a gift. And you go, oh, I know. Thanks for the gift. And then they keep running, and now there's rams and ewes, and, well, these are for you. They're a gift. Your servant Jacob's here to bless you. And you keep going, and then there's a whole thing of cows, and you're like, wow, cows. But what really gets them are the donkeys, and the, probably a camel came with that group. Um, so he just keeps getting gift after gift after gift. That's a pretty wise strategy to soften the anger of a hostile person. How can they be mad at you if you're giving them gifts and calling them? How can you get mad at your own servant? And if Jacob keeps saying, your servant, your servant, your servant, 
How do you get mad at somebody who's there to serve you? So Jacob prays. He does his best to set things up. And what we're seeing here is an example of active faith with trust in God. Either this cools Esau's anger or it doesn't. Either way, um, Jacob's doing everything he can do um, to make things right with Esau. If we're taking the Bible at face value, it just tells us one motivation for doing this. And that's at the very end of what I just read. Perhaps he will accept me. So you can try to ascribe other motivations to Jacob, or we can just read the Bible and it says he's trying to do this so that his brother will accept him again. And that's the reason he has. He's not trying to be manipulative or trick him or anything like that. He's just being kind of candid here. It's not a sin for Jacob then to struggle. It's not a sin for Jacob to be in this situation with Esau. The sin is to be struggling with the struggle. Many Christians I know stress out over life situations. Life happens and everything's drama and you get all worked up about it and everything's there instead of just living in peace and joy with God's promises. It's hard to live in peace and joy when your brother's coming with 400 little soldiers ready to kill you. Um, And I think Jacob's doing what he can do to try to make this right. And again, the Jews are going to use a story like this and this is where they get the concept of shalom. You do everything you can do to get shalom with other people, get peace. It's plausible then and well within the narrative that this is probably honest repentance from Jacob um, and retracting and reconciling whatever schemes he had with his mom. His mom was Rebecca. But he still needs God to soften Esau's heart. Um, Laban would have never really been appeased, um, but Esau might still be. So verse 21, So the present went over on before him, but he himself lodged that night in the camp. And he arose that night and took his two wives, two female servants, and his eleven sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them and he sent them over the brook and he sent over what he had. Um, It says he lodged. It doesn't say that he slept. (laughs) I thought that was a cute thought. He's doing a lot of work through the night and all this organization and coordination is part of what he's doing. When it says he sent them over the brook, that pretty much means there's no retreat because it takes a lot of time to cross a body of water when you don't have a bridge. So that makes him vulnerable to Esau. Jacob then is now left alone and he's removed the last barrier between, the last natural barrier between Jacob and Esau by crossing the river. You wonder if Jacob's sending them away so he'd have some time alone, time to pray. Um, You wonder, some people felt like he was sending them out in front so Jacob would be the last person. Um, So he was hiding behind his his wealth and his family. Um, and it could just be that he's anxious and he's stressed out. Sometimes when you got to go see your family and there's hard feelings between you and your family, it's pretty hard to go see him. And that night before can be a sleepless night. Then Jacob was left alone, verse 24, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. I like how it says a man wrestled with him. It's very mysterious. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you please me. Okay, so let's unpack this. Jacob was left alone and the man wrestled with him. It doesn't say that Jacob fought with God. And later on, the man is called God. Jacob calls him God. It doesn't say that Jacob wrestled with God. It says God wrestled with him, which creates a really interesting thing because if God really wanted to do a power smash and pin us, I don't think it would take God much effort, right? Um, So God's wrestling with Jacob probably because of something that's going on in his heart. There's something Jacob hasn't let go of yet. 
when God wrestles with us and God doesn't use his power to overcome us, then when he doesn't prevail against us or he doesn't prevail against Jacob, it's probably because Jacob is being willful and stubborn. It's not that God couldn't overpower him if he wanted to. Um, in fact, it says at the end of days that every knee will bow and every tongue confess. That's when God will exert power on humanity. But at this point, clearly the man is trying to get at Jacob in some way, shape, or fair. I don't get with the socket and the hip. I, there weren't even really, most commentators just skipped that point, but I was trying to look up the hip joint. It is the strongest muscle in the, in the body for what it's worth. I don't know. In verse 30, they're going to refer to the man as God. Um, I think what's going on here, if I had to put my own thought on it, and, and it's been two weeks, so I've really thought a lot. I think this is what happens to gifted people. And to be honest, I really resonate with Jacob. I don't have a trouble with this idea of spending all night wrestling with God. I think most of you, because you're all college educated people, you have gifts and talents. You're extreme. You look at the vast majority of humanity, you're clearly in the top one or 2% of education, gifts, everything else. And one of the things that happens when you're gifted, smart, intelligent people is you think you know better than God how to live your life. And I think that's the, the biggest struggle we have. And I think Jacob has just got this thing where he's anxious about something he shouldn't be anxious about. When he prays to God, he even says to God, I know you promised me all this stuff. Keep your promises. But then he's staying all night doing this. And what God's trying to get through his head is, I'm in control. Will you just let me do this? I showed a camp of angels to you. And now God himself, the man, Jesus, comes and talks to him. And then the thing, verse 26, and he said, that's the man. That's Again, if you see God in a human form, I call that person Jesus. So that's my own Christian bias. But the man says, let me go for the day breaks. So there's this point where God's just like, I'm kind of done with you. Let I can't prevail against you. I can't get you to work with me. So I'm going to walk away. So whatever was going on, whatever wrestling Jacob was has, um, God's kind of done and he, and he wants to go away. I think it's kind of nice because his hips out of joint. I kind of picture Jacob on the ground and the man standing up trying to walk away and Jacob just grabbing his ankle and holding on for dear life. We used to do this when Grant and Katie were kids. They'd both grab an ankle and then I would walk around the house dragging them on the floor. This is wonderful dad moments. Um, but I love what Jacob says. I won't let you go until you bless me. And I think Jacob's finally understanding what a blessing really is. It's not the stuff. It's not the, the prestige or the position. It's that relationship with God. And he's basically saying, I just want you, God. So God actually takes his hip out and, and he's still just going to hang on for dear life. I love the fact that God does not chastise Jacob for this. I feel like it, at some point when you look at the next verse, so he said to him, what's your name? What a transition, right? They're fighting all night. And the man says, all right, well, let me go. I'm all done. And Jacob just said, I can't let you go until I get your blessing. I want my relationship with you, Lord. How many times have we felt that way in life where we just turn to God and say, all I want is you. I don't care about anything else. I don't care about any of the trimmings. I don't care about anything else. I just want the relationship with you. And that's when God turns around and says, what's your name? And I think that's a really cool moment or transition in Jacob's life. And we're going to see Jacob do some things a little differently after this night with God. When the hip gets destroyed, he's going to be limping later. This is a permanent 
injury that he's going to take as he wrestles with God. And sometimes it, we'll get, well, I'll come back to that. It's not a testament to Jacob's godlike strength, right? It's not that he could wrestle with God and compete. It's a testament to God's patience for Jacob. Um, now that he's crippled, he can't run away from Esau. There's no running when you're crippled. Um, he has to face what's coming at him, and he has to face it fully. I imagine Jacob feels beat. He has to now submit to Esau. He was already submitting to Esau, but now he's crippled, and God's walking away from him, and the only thing he's got left is to grab the heels. Suddenly, Jacob lives up to his name. Right? His name was Heel Catcher. Not devious Jacob, not weird scheming Jacob. His name was Heel Catcher, and that's exactly what he's doing right now. It was prophetic. And he's finally at that moment where he's just going to hold on to God for dear life. That is not the same thing as just being someone who supplants other people. That's being someone who clings to God. What an amazing and a beautiful image. And I think that's why the man turns around and he said to him, verse 27, what's your name? And he said, it's Jacob, as he's holding on to his ankle. Right? And that's at least my picture of it. It doesn't say where he's grabbing him. Um, he's confessing, I'm the one holding your heel. And verse 28, and he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob but Israel. And Israel, if you translate it, is two words. It means to fight, and it means God. So you could translate in, that in different ways. Either God fights or contends or prevails with you, or it could mean um, he who struggles with God, or it could mean you've struggled with God and God rules. So there's different ways you could put those words together, but also, ultimately we get the use of the word Israel for the first time in the Bible. And that's going to be a major character player. The nation of Israel will be a big deal. For you struggled with God and men. This is the translation that the man gives. For you struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Prevailed there means overcome or endure something. This is an amazing thought that what God sees in our life isn't that we get everything the way we want it. It's that we struggle through things. If we live a life of comfort and ease and we never struggle with anything, that's kind of sad and we're not blessed in that way. The blessing here that he gets, and this is the blessing he's giving to Jacob, it's what Jacob asked for, is that God sees our struggles and he sees when we endure them and we endure them with hope in Christ. If we are honored by God, we will have struggles in our life and there'll be ones that we can handle and, and get through. Not because they're easy, but because we will. And I just thought my prayer is that we as a, a family and as a Bible study and as a group of people and the people we know that we bless with our words, that we as a body of Christ and as Christians can be people that contend with God because he's big enough for us to contend with him, to invest our time with God, to pursue the blessing of God, and we don't quit until God sees that we want his blessing and we'll do it. I think this is where prayer fests are awesome thing. We're just going to pray about something till it happens. And I've seen people in groups of people do that sort of thing. I also thought, wouldn't it be cool if God changed all of our names? Let us be a people where God changes our name and we are what God calls us, not what our parents called us. And I think that's kind of a cool moment because these parents named their kids poorly, but God names his kids really well. And I would rather have God's name in my life than what the name that my that's earth gave me. So there's still a little struggle and fight in Jacob. We're going to see him continue to learn and grow. This is not like the end of the story. Verse 29, then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. 
And he said, why do you ask about my name? This is just teasing, by the way, because it's like as a reader knowing the New Testament, wouldn't it have been cool if he would have said, it's Jesus, but don't tell anybody right now. But he doesn't. He just stays elusive. Um, And he said, why is it you ask my name? And he blessed him there. We don't get to see what the blessing was, just that it happens, that that he blesses him. And he blesses him because he's trying to know God, Um, not because of anything Jacob did or anything he had figured out or how many sheep he had, but just because he clung to God and he asked for it. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, which means facing God, for I have seen the face of God, I have seen God face to face, and my life is pervert. Preserved. I've started, I, I saw God and I lived. Jacob asked for a name. God doesn't give him the name. What he gives him is this blessing. And I think that's wonderful. Um, so now we see that God is once again met face to face with one of these patriarchs. Jacob grows up, he finds peace, he moves forward. And that's why the, the next chapter we get to see the result of this meeting with, with, with the Lord. Um, verse 31, just as he crossed over the penuel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip. So this is where I was saying he gets to keep the, even though he's right with God and there's been this moment where he, God blesses him, he gets to keep the infirmity. He gets to continue to limp the rest of his life. Uh, Paul had this too. He mentioned that he had a thorn in his side. Some people believe that's because he got stoned and survived. Remember that? They thought he was dead. I don't think you get stoned and then wake up and you're the same person you were before. So it could be that he was blind, that he was messed up. Some people think it was a moral issue that he struggled with. But in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, it says, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. The reason Paul gives for the thorn that he gets to spend his whole life with is so that he doesn't get too cocky. Now think of Jacob. This is a guy who thinks he's pretty hot stuff, right? And in his childhood, he puts himself in that position and God gives him an infirmity to help keep him humble. So my prayer is, Lord, please don't let me have an infirmity to keep me humble. Let me, get, let me be humble first so I don't need something like that to be more like you. Um, but Paul needs that and Paul even claims he's the chief of sinners. It does keep him humble. It actually works effectively. God knows what we need more than we know what we need. Verse 32, therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank. Another word for that is failed, uh, which is in the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank or failed. I don't know why the people of Israel don't eat. I have no idea. And there's really no one that even talks about this verse. It's just kind of a verse that's there. So maybe we'll find out why it's there at some point in the future. Israel is a nation then will continue to struggle like Jacob for all of its history. And as in Ezekiel 38 and Revelation 19, uh, it says Israel's going to have a final conflict with all the other nations of the world, and they'll essentially be broken before God reigns them. So Israel, like Jacob, will go through a really similar life cycle, and it'll have to go through all these struggles and whatnot before, and humble themselves before God becomes comes back and returns to rule them. Verse 1 of Genesis 32. Uh, now Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and there Esau was coming. So now we get that, this, we switch scenes, and, and, and the scene changes, and of course Esau is coming with those men. Dust rising up behind them. They're very angry-looking men. Maybe, or they're bewildered, not, and they have a lot of sheep following them. 
Esau was coming, and with him were 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants, and he put the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph laughed last. If I stopped here, you'd be like, wait, he's putting his wives and children out in front of him? And that sounds really cowardly, and but it creates a nice image of him hiding behind his youngest kid, probably Joseph, right? Um, another way to look at this, if you read verse 3, is that he's setting an order and he's organizing his family for introductions. Because in verse 3, then he crossed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. He actually walks in front of his family instead of hiding behind them, which some people say is a change from before he wrestled with God. Um, but he's really set this up for a long time. He sent his sheep and his goats and his, he sent all the animals and the servants. And now we're getting to this moment where they're going to be face to face and he's getting ready to introduce his family. Notice that he puts uh, um, the maidservants and their children in front and then Leah and then Rachel and then Joseph. So there's clearly a ranking or an organization to this family um, where Rachel is the preeminent wife. Lifted his eyes and looked, and there, there's three different things there. He has a lifting his eyes, which is to look physically, uh, and looked is a mental recognition of like, yep, that's Esau after so many years. And then behold, and there was Esau coming. He has a, a recognition of what's going on. Esau at this point, I would say, is a mission field. Esau's not active. He's left the Holy Land. He's not serving the God of his father. Uh, the he in Hebrews, remember, he was called profane because he cares more about the world than the things of God. This is not someone that Jacob's going to have a lot of fellowship with, and we'll see that at the end of this chapter. Um, bowing seven times at the end of verse three uh, is actually a really common honor that you give to kings. There's even some societies today that still do this. You bow seven times before someone to honor them as your king. So when Jacob does that, he's basically submitting to Esau. There is no doubt. There's no uh, misinterpreting what he's done. When he bows seven times, he's calling Esau his king. He's saying, I will submit and serve you, and I'm not claiming the blessing that back when we were kids, we had all that stuff with the blessing. But when he bows to Esau here, he's submitting to and, and basically asking for forgiveness. Um, I think it's cool that when Jacob's right with God, he's free to do this because he doesn't have to struggle for, for power. He might have been struggling for power because he thought it was God's will. But when you're in God's will, you don't have to struggle for power. You can just say, I'll just I'll submit to you. That's what we can do. Um, and God can still keep his promise even when we submit to others because God is in control. But, verse 4, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. I got to tell you, if, if I had a brother and he started kissing my neck, that'd be too personal for me. I'd say, you know, give me some space, brother. Um, but he fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. I think fell on his neck meant that he hugged him, like he, you know, he grabbed around the neck and he's hugging him and kissing him and all that sort of thing. It's very mushy. Um, clearly, Esau has softened considerably by this reaction. Also, if he falls on his neck while he's bowing seven times, that's an even odder image. So I'm thinking he bowed seven times, and then he stood up, and then he got hugs and kisses. Just trying to paint a picture here, and it's a confusing picture to paint. Um, I think that what happened to Laban, where he had the dream the night before, might be really simpler. God's probably worked on Esau's heart here, and the gifts probably didn't hurt. Verse 5, and he lifted his eyes 
and saw the women and children and said, who are these with you? So he said, the children of whom God has graciously given your, given your servant. I love how Jacob does two things with his response. First, he points things to God. He's showing Esau, I serve God. And then he says, given your servant and I serve you. So he's basically humbling himself in order to God and to Esau. Verse six, then the maidservants came near, they and their children and bowed down. And Leah came near with her children and they bowed down. And afterwards, Joseph and Rachel came near and they bowed down. This is why I said that he was putting them in order because then they come and present themselves in an orderly fashion. Then Esau said, what do you mean by all this company which I met? And he said, these are to find favor in the sight of the Lord. I imagine if Esau the whole day before was getting all these presents, that Esau probably spent a long night thinking about this interaction too. And the first thing that can come out of Esau's very not so clever mouth is, I don't get what you're doing with all the gifts. What's your intention? And what are you trying to do? He's just being really blunt with them. Um, and again, Jacob very astutely says to find favor in the sight of my Lord. He keeps reminding Esau, I consider you the boss. My Lord there, he's actually using the Hebrew word Adonai. So he's calling him his Lord in, in a spiritual and a physical and a worldly sense. Also notice how Jacob puts God in front. Esau asks a worldly question. Oh, you got some kids. And Jacob's response is, yep, God gave me kids. And I think that's kind of a really interesting way. We do this all the time with people at church and whatnot, um, where that's kind of the discourse we're practicing is it doesn't matter what you throw at me, I'm going to come back with the Lord of hosts. It really irritates people that don't want to talk about God, right? But it's also a friendly way to say, well, that's who I am. If you want to know who I am, it's this is the family God gave me. Verse 9, but Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please. If I've found any favor in your sight, then receive my present from my hand, insomuch as I've seen your face as though I had seen the face of God and you were pleased with me. What a compliment. Of course, Esau's saying, you don't have to give me all these gifts. I have lots of stuff. I got everything of Isaac's. Like Esau's running the, the family farm. And Jacob's like, no, if, 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 you, if I found any favor at all, please take the gifts from my hand. All I wanted is that I saw your face and the fact that you're pleased with me is like an answer to prayer. That's all I really was asking the Lord for. It's all I really wanted. How joyful when God reveals himself through the kindness of others. This is a total answer to prayer for Jacob. It evaporates Jacob's concerns and worries. Unless Esau is trying to play a game, but I don't think Esau is that clever. Please take of my blessing that is brought to you, verse 11, because God's dealt gracious with, graciously with me because I have enough. So he urged him and, and Esau took all the gifts. So what a wonderful thing for Jacob to go away running from murder because Esau was planning to kill him with nothing. And now he comes back with complete abundance and gifts. What a, what a blessing. Take of my blessing. And that's what Jacob calls it. By saying take of my blessing, God's giving, Jacob is again, third time now, gives the credit to God instead of himself. It's not Jacob's doing, but God's grace that he's gotten all this stuff. He totally understands that God will and he can bless anyone, anywhere, for any reason if he wants to. So Jacob's willing to give and he gives generously. Verse 9, Esau says he has enough earthly stuff. Verse 11, that's a different word. Um, so let me go back to verse 9. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. 
that word enough implies stuff, things. I have enough things. In verse 11, he says, God has dealt graciously with me because I have enough. That's a totally different word for enough. And that word means everything, not just earthly stuff. I have enough because God's blessed me spiritually, emotionally, my family. God's given me everything I need. So it's kind of like saying, I have enough money. And then the other person says, but I have everything. I have more than money. And I think that's cool how Jacob does that and uses the word accordingly. His cup is overflowing. When we get blessings, we're not supposed to hoard them or keep them to ourselves. We're supposed to let them overflow to other people. And Jacob is basically saying, I have overflowing everything and I want to give you part of what I have. And that's a different way to give. Verse 12, then Esau said, let us take our journey, let us go and I will go before you. I'll be your boss. So welcome back to the family. I'm in charge. As long as you're clear with that, you can come home with me. Um, he'll take Jacob back in. He'll forgive him. Um, but like with Laban, Jacob's not really asking for that from Esau here. He's just trying to get peace. And now that he's got peace with Esau, he's got what he wants because Esau's pretty ungodly and he's left the Holy Land. Um, so how do you handle that kind of a situation? Um, so this is the version of Esau taking the blessing back and He's basically saying, I won't kill you and you can come back as long as you are my number two. Um, it's one thing to make peace with Esau. It's another thing to go back into Esau's world. And this is a, a lot of new believers struggle with this. It's one thing to make peace with those people that don't want to be with the Lord. It's another thing to go live with them and do things with them and hang out with them. So the grace of God can elevate the world as Jacob does in his life but the world's grace actually brings believers down and that it doesn't go both ways. Does that make sense? All right. So verse 13, but Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak. At this point, the kids are probably 13 and under and the flocks and the herds, which are nursing with me. And if the men should drive them hard for one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go ahead before his servant. And I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord and seer. This is an interesting response. Because he's saying, until I come to my Lord and seer, which he's not going to actually do for another 20 years. So he's basically saying, that's okay, Esau. My, my, I've been tired. It's been a long journey. We're just going to take our time. You go back home, take at pace, and we'll meet you there. But he doesn't say how long it's going to take them. So... And Esau said, now let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. Let me give you a gift back. But look at what Jacob does. And he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. In other words, all the gifts I gave you were to get your favor. If I have it, we're, we're even. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Jacob doesn't take gifts from Esau. He doesn't want any attachments. We saw Abraham do this with the king of Sodom. And with, just saying, you can have all the loot. I don't want any attachments. I don't want to be yoked with you in that kind of way. And he doesn't want Esau thinking he owes him anything. Um, Jacob did the same thing with Laban when they separated the herds. So it was crystal clear who owned what stuff. So in verse 10, 11, and now in 15, Jacob's using a natural, a natural discourse that always says that he has a relationship with God. The four times Jacob has spoke, every time he's, he brings God into his sentence. Have you noticed that? So if you're dealing with somebody who's not a believer and you want to make clear who you are, 
to always work God into your discourse is really tricky to do, but Jacob does it extremely artfully. Everything Esau says is worldly, and everything Jacob responds is heavenly. Um, so basically, Jacob's saying, if we have peace together, that's all I want from you. You can keep dad's flocks. I don't need anything from you. We're good. Verse 17, Jacob's journeyed to Succoth, and he built himself a house, and he made booths for his livestock, and therefore the name of that place is called Succoth, which means booths. Um, it should say that instead, Jacob, because it just got done in 18, saying, so Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, and Jacob journeyed to Succoth. So not only did he not follow um, Esau to Succoth, but he went the opposite direction on a map. So he didn't go towards Seir at all. He went back towards Canaan, back towards the area where Abraham and, and Isaac both held, had their stuff. Um, so not 20 years, I'm sorry. It's going to be about 8 to 10 years because the next time they get together, when he does get to Seir, Dinah, who's about 6 years old right now, is in her late adolescence because she's going to have some really tough times. So it's been probably 6 to 10 years is how long it'll take Jacob to see Esau again. The key here is that he made peace with Esau, and now he's going to keep his distance from Esau. We're not, we don't, we're not on bad terms, but we can go our own way. Verse 18, then Jacob came safely, and that is the word shalom. Jacob came shalom to the city of Shechem, uh, which is in the land of Canaan. And when he came from Padam Aram, he pitched his tent before the city, and he brought, bought the parcel of land where he pitched his tent from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected an altar there and called it El Elohi Israel. And that's the end of the chapter. Um, this is how you get out of a tough situation. So he had Laban chasing him from behind, Esau chasing him from the front, and with Laban he just kind of stops and says, his rights and what he's done and he gives them that long list of things like you have nothing against me Laban why don't you just go your own way and God works on Laban's heart and he goes his own way and with Esau he takes a totally different tactic and instead of saying I have every right he says I will be your servant you're my lord I have no conflict I will submit myself and lower myself so that I can live my life the way I want to live it Jesus preaches a fairly similar message when he says when you go to somebody's house you don't sit at the head of the table. Remember that story? Take the seat of least distinction and let people invite you to the table or elevate you. But your job as a believer is to humble yourself, lower yourself, and become a servant of the world. Jesus taught the lesson to his own disciples when he washed their feet. He said, boy, if you, you want to be the first among you, or it's going to be the last. If the last among you will be the first in the kingdom of heaven. It's those who serve that will become elevated. And this is the tactic he uses with Esau. Instead of trying to show Esau how right he is, he just shows Esau what kind of a servant he can be and how he can bless Esau in every way, shape, and form. And then in verse 20, remember we kind of start the story with Jacob when he runs away from home and he sleeps that night and there's a rock at his head and he puts his trust in a rock. I think it's interesting that we, we come to a, a chapter point in the story of Jacob and again, there's a rock involved because when he builds an altar, he's building it out of uncut stones. Um, but instead of putting his trust in a physical rock, that rock represents his trust in the Lord. El Elohi Israel means the mighty God of Israel. 
it's the first use in the name uh, of Israel in terms of a group of people. Um, but Jacob probably built it referring to himself, um, but it can also be translated as a nation or a group of people. So that's the first time we see it. That's a good thing it's in the book of Genesis because this is the book of first. So now in the storyline, we have Israel. We have a nation and it exists. And it just happened right there in that verse. Um, we leave Jacob, in back, he's back in the Holy Land. He has shalom, peace with everybody around him. Um, this is a good place to be. He pitches his tent just like Abraham did. He's not a permanent resident, but he pitches a tent um, and builds a home there and buys a parcel of land. Um, interestingly enough, this spot where he buys a parcel of land and digs a well, um, his dad Isaac dug a ton of wells all over the Holy Land, right? But Jacob is known for one well, and if you remember, it's the same well where Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman. So that's at Shechem, it's in this place, and in the New Testament they still call it Jacob's well. So this place he settles, this place where he has peace, is the same place that Jesus is going to have a conversation. I think that's cool. Like when I travel to the Holy Land and you're like, ooh, this is a first century stone. Mark could have sat on this stone and I'm touching this spot. You know, you think those thoughts like, wow, there's history here. Um, but you think when Jesus was coming up to that well and sitting down as God, he would have known that Jacob sat by that same well and how cool it is that Jesus would have been there for that moment and he would have seen it. And if he's the man that he wrestled with, um, Jesus would have had some good memories about it. And that's where he has this interaction with, with the Samaritan woman. Um, so there we go. And we leave him there. Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, open our eyes and help us to understand, Lord, uh, your word. Um, thank you for the stories that you've given. Thank you for the history uh, that you've laid out. Thank you for the nation of Israel and its blessing it's been to the world. Um, Lord, help our, our hearts to be such that we are willing to wrestle with you instead of walk away, that we will grab onto you and cling to you when times get tough. When we struggle, we turn to you and not to ourselves. Lord, we're smart people. Um, Lord, you've blessed us with intelligence, but that can be such a curse. Um, when we think we know better than you do, we've, we've not only walked away from intelligence, we've moved to foolishness. Lord, let's honor you and lift you up with what you've given us, with the blessing and gifts you've given us. Lord, help us to be diplomatic with the world we live in. Not Even the people that are other believers don't necessarily want to serve you the same way we do, so help us to love them and, and honor that you're leading them just like you're leading us. Um, but And Lord, we know people that don't want to serve you at all. They don't even want to talk about you. They want nothing to do with you. Um, and Lord, help us to serve them and minister to them and wash their feet. Help us to lower ourselves so that you can be elevated. Uh, and when they compliment our blessings and, and, and look at our family and say, wow, you have a wonderful family. Lord, help us to just turn it to you and say, yeah, that's the family God blessed me with. Um, help us to give glory to you in all things, in everything that we have that goes well in our life. Let's turn it to you. And Lord, when it goes wrong in our life, Help us to change and adjust and learn and grow. And if you put a thorn in our side, Lord, if you have to put a thorn in our side, may it humble us and may it serve the purpose you put it there for. Um, and help us to honor and recognize you in all ways. Thank you for Jacob. We can't wait to meet him uh, in heaven. I'm, I'm thinking he's quite a character. Um, thank you for his gifts and what he's, he, he brought and, and for his children that you birthed a nation through him and Isaac and Abraham. Lord, thanks for being God that intervenes, that takes the time to wrestle with us. And uh, thank you for being a good and a holy God. May our request come to you, Lord, 
in a way that we understand who you are before we put anything at your feet. Um, because, Lord, all we really want at the end of the day is to be blessed by you. Um, so please bless us. Honor our lives. Be in our lives. Help us with our homework in a new semester. Uh, help us with all the new endeavors we have. Um, help some of us to find jobs if we need jobs, Lord. And, and I just pray you bless that search and, and be in it. And may we honor you in all successes that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, Shadow. That's all there is to it. Hello. Are you tired, dog? Amen. Yeah. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> I think he was sleeping with his eyes open. <laughs> if you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.